This podcast is a presentation of Sunset Presbyterian Church. For more information, log on to our website at www.sunsetpres.org. Good. Okay. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good job getting here amongst the wind and cold. And I heard it howling last night when I laid down to go to sleep. So been thankful for the sunshine, but um, that wind definitely said, good morning, you're awake now. (laughs) Um, So I'm just thankful for you here, Tuesday night ladies, Um, welcome and good job making it through your work day and I love that I could visit you a few weeks ago and I can just picture you in the room and um, in your community and same to you Thursday morning ladies, Um, still just God bless you for getting up and being with God and each other in the morning. Last week, Alyssa did a fantastic job of kind of recapping where we've been, because we're now on the second half of the study, believe it or not, as I've been doing life and having to schedule appointments. The fact that I've been doing them for November is a bit weird and nerve-wracking and exciting, too. So um, I just appreciated how last week she took us through where we've been. Um, just through the road to Emmaus and first that first experience of seeing Jesus and coming back to creation and the fall, going through the flood and Noah, and then she just so beautifully took us through the Tower of Babel. So we are now, with the second half, um, we're going to be embedded in Abraham's family, and so that's where Genesis takes us. Um, So it'll be a little bit of a transition, um, but an exciting one at that. I gave a couple of handouts. I was thankful for the quilts. I love that Kim brought the little tutu because um, I have no props, no sounds, just me. But there is scripture, so that's the good news. Um, I do have a couple of handouts for you, though. So as I go through some of the scripture and some of the story, um, One sheet, there's a genealogy from Noah all the way down through Joseph. Um, And so I thought it just might be nice as we go through the rest of Genesis to be able to track again where we've been, where we started, and seeing the lineage all the way through. And then on the back is just, um, it's a timeline. And so it gives, um, I have a cool book that has all these maps and timelines and different things. And this one is, I thought was kind of cool because it gives biblical what's going on in the Bible as well as the key events. And so at the top two sections, you'll see Abraham and how his family um, transforms throughout the years as well as the major things that happen within those time frames. And then on the bottom half is actually what's going on just in ancient times. So it's kind of interesting to look at what's happening in history in different parts of the world, as well as the biblical times. So that's there for you, should you find that of interest, um, and especially as we go through um, the, some of the scripture today. You can see from Noah, we come to Shem, his son, and then that's where we trace all the way to Terah, which is Abram's father. And then from there, you can see from Abram and down to his lineage. If you peek down to, through Isaac and Rebekah and Leah, we see 
Judah, which is where ultimately our Savior comes from. And so, again, I just thought that was kind of cool to kind of be able to trace that through. Abraham was born Abram. Abram meant high or exalted father. In chapter 17, when we get there next week with Mary in verse 5, God, that is where God renames Abraham. And he renames him because you will be the father of many nations. And that's the transformation of his name. Abraham is said to be a man of faith, a father of faith, a friend of God. Romans 4 tells us that Abraham believed God. He believed in him, and this belief was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness, meaning holy, sanctified, I always think just opposite of sin. We'll come back to this righteousness piece a little later. The word righteous is always not a stumbling block, but a word that I just really have to think about in its context of the Bible and how it's different from sometimes how the world uses that word. It's one of those when I think of the fear of God. Every time I'm in scripture, I learn more and more about what that means, and I feel like I'm in that same journey with the word righteous. So I'm going to kind of set that aside, and then we'll come back to that a little bit later. By faith, Abraham trusted and obeyed God. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 and 4, both speak to this. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. So Abraham went as the Lord told him. The Lord said go, and Abraham went. Not only did the Lord say go, but he said go to the land I show you. Nothing concrete, no specific directions, no specific place to go. He didn't say north, he didn't say go south, he didn't say go towards this city or to those people. He just said go where I will show you. So we're on that need to know basis, and Abraham was too. God said, right now you don't need to know where you're going, only to pack up and to go. And by his faith in God, Abraham trusted God and obeyed. I'm sure like me, at some point in your life, you've moved. Is there anyone in the room that's never moved? Oh, good. That would probably ruin this. (laughs) So when you think about a move or the moves throughout your life, when did they occur? Was it during childhood? Was it going off to college, getting married? Maybe it was later in life, picking up and moving your whole family, kids, pets, belongings. Maybe it was after a divorce, having to leave that home and start somewhere new, or the death of a spouse, and again, having to leave all that you knew and had built with the one that you'd spent your life with and having to move somewhere without them. Just take a moment and think about what move most stands out. Can you remember how you felt, what your thoughts were, Fears, doubts, worry. What was that like in that moment? My first move 
technically came when I was four years old. So barely old enough to kind of remember that first home and the move. My, most of my memories are in the house that we moved to. I grew up in the same house for a full 10 years, same kids, went to the same school, moved along with all the same groups. So my next major move wasn't until I was 14 and just getting ready to start high school. We moved from Spokane, Washington, down here to Beaverton. And for me, this place was completely unknown. I'd never been very far out of Spokane. Um, we traveled here and there, but not very far. And so the idea of moving somewhere where I knew no one, none of our family was here, and we had a ton of family in Spokane. Never mind the fact that I was 14. <laughs> so you can imagine I was a really happy camper at this decision to move. <laughs> and I, I didn't hide my unhappiness. <laughs> I constantly have to tell my mom, I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> I even remember at one point I was like, I'm not going. I'm staying here and I'm living with my best friend. That's just how it's going to be. And of course, my mom and dad very lovingly said, well, no but thanks for asking. <laughs> My next major move away from this area was in 2008. Brad and I, he got a job offer overseas, and we decided to sell everything. We sold our house, we sold our cars, a lot of our stuff, and picked up what would fit in a tiny little, about 600 square foot apartment, and we decided to go. So again, very scary. We were leaving our home, our family, all that we'd known. We had to pack up. And when that moment came of actually leaving and getting on the plane, um, it was that moment of, oh, here's all the fears. Are we going to meet people? I'm going somewhere where their first language is not English. How am I going to even, how are we going to find an apartment, let alone secure an apartment, a car? It was a whole brand new just experience, and so it was a, just a huge leap into the unknown. When I think about this, I remember we were excited. We willingly made this decision. It wasn't like when I was 14 and wasn't part of the decision, but still those doubts and those fears and that anxiety just crept in. What would it like to be so far away? When I started going through this part of Genesis and I put myself in Abram's shoes, I'm sure he had the same doubts, the same unknowns presented him, questions, even more so than when I had. I kind of felt myself laughing and telling myself at that in 2008, at that move, like, okay, honey, you need to put your big girl pants on and just go for it. Like, Abram is facing so much more than I even did. And so it just put it into context, and it made his willingness to obey and trust, just that much more prevalent to me. And so that really hit home. In the second part of verse 4, Scripture goes on to tell us, Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. Verse 5 continues, He took his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired, and they set out for the land of Canaan. And they arrived there. So in two very short verses, I'm guessing the time frame is very different than what we could maybe draw from with these two verses. We know that Abram did bring some family. He brought 
the people in their household. They had to pack up their possessions, their clothing, shelter, food, animals. I mean, it, it was an event to, just to try and a huge amount of effort to try and get everyone ready. We know from scripture at some point during these preparations, God must have shared with Abraham where he was going. In verse five, the second part, they set out for the land of Canaan. I remembered when I was reading through Genesis 11, so if we back up just a bit, in verse 31, it states that Terah, Abram's father, had originally, um, they had started in Ur, and went all the way, and they were headed towards Canaan. So it was stated that they all left from Ur to go to Canaan. So Haran had passed. Abram's brother Nahor must have stayed, and I'm totally blowing the names, and I totally apologize for that. So we aren't privy to when the Lord told Abram that the land he would go to was Canaan, but we can be assured from Scripture that, again, Abram agreed, and he obeyed, and he went. And there was some knowledge of this area, and at one point earlier in his life, his family had actually started in that direction. So I'm wondering how that played into Abram's trust in God in this time. As we go through the rest of chapter 12 and on into chapters 13 and 15, so those were our scriptures for today, feel free, there's maps on your tables. So there's one large one that's the topographical, and it'll show you kind of the big scale of the area. So you'll see, of course, Israel, Jordan, that whole area with Egypt to the west, and Ara or <laughs> um, Arabia, and Turkey is above, so you can kind of just place yourself and remember where we're at. There's also two smaller maps that are there for you just to take. So the big one's kind of for the table, but there are some smaller ones. So as we go through this journey, you can kind of track where they are and where they're headed. And when they get to each of the places, just kind of where, again, proximity to the places that we know today. So in Genesis 12, 6 through 9, Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morim at Skechem. Oh my gosh. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So if you look on any of the maps, so from the smaller, so from the east, or is down on the east, very bottom part, and they traveled all the way up to Haran, which is where they settled originally with Abram's father. And then you can see their track through into Canaan and down through that whole area and eventually on their way to Egypt. From here, he went on to the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent. And Bethel was on the west and I on the east. So down in the Jordan Valley, you can see those two cities. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. 
Abram then set out and continued toward Negev. So we keep moving west here. From Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel. Oops, I lost it. And, um, and I, oops, I skipped. So verse 10 shares that he, there did come a time that famine took over the land. And so from the Jordan Valley, they went down towards Egypt. We'll come back to that time in Egypt in a few minutes. From Egypt, they returned back to Negev. So into Egypt, they had their time there, and then they were brought back to Negev. From Negev, he went place to place until he came back to Bethel, to the place where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. The possessions of Abram and Lot were so great that this land, it couldn't sustain them both. So they separated. What I love here is we see Abram's trust in the Lord in that for the sake of peace and being the faithful leader that he was, he chose to refrain from quarreling over who would go where. And he gave Lot that choice. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zor was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, where they had just been. So this was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. So let's go back to that time in Egypt. After seeing Abram's trust in the Lord and his, uh, the obedience that followed, here we first see Abram's tendency to rely on himself instead of God. Verse 10 tells us there was a famine in the land. They went down to Egypt and lived there for a while because this famine was so severe. He was about to enter Egypt. He said to his wife, Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but let you live. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. And sure enough, when Abram went, came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. When Pharaoh's officers saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And of course, she was taken into his palace. In verse 16, it goes on to tell us he treated Abram well for her sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, camels. So I kind of got stuck here for a little bit because for the first time in all the times I've gone through Genesis, it just clicked. Sarah was taken into the palace. And I realized I can't kid myself as to what this meant taken into his palace means that Sarah was taken in, so she was taken in because of her beauty, which leads to the purpose that she was taken into the palace. She became part of Pharaoh's harem of wives and concubines. Abram would have known this, probably knowing the culture of them, if he knew enough to know that they would see her and see her beauty and take her, he knew what would come of that. 
So that kind of set a little heavy on my heart. Abram saw it better to have Sarah go to the palace than for him to fall into death. What caught my attention, though, is he knew God's promise at this point. God had promised to make Abram a great nation, promised to make his name great. So Abram, while he was able to trust in the initial calling to go, faltered in his trust here to lean on God's reliance and protection. If he was going to make Abram a great nation, he would have kept him from death in Egypt. Just part of my thought process through here. So despite his faith, Abram didn't trust God to protect him in this moment. And again, he just learned, he leaned towards lying to protect himself. Now, God created circumstances that not only were they all released without further harm, but they left with all the possessions. Pharaoh didn't ask them, didn't make them keep, leave any of the stuff that they'd acquired. He let them go. So God brought them out despite their decisions. From here, chapter 14 takes us to the wars between the kings and the capture of Lot. So while in Egypt, Abram showed a lack of trust in God's promises, in this time we see quite the opposite. So he's regained that trust and that obedience. There's something that compels him once Lot is taken that Abram knows he has to go get Lot and his family. So against four kings and their armies, and I know Pastor C pointed this out, he took a whole 318 men, it's even in scripture, a whole 318 men to fight against the kings and their armies just to get his family back. So where in Egypt he relied on his own protection, obviously with only 318 men, Abram is trusting in God's protection during this time. Abram goes a step further in his reliance on God's provision by not only tithing what he plundered from these victories, but he didn't keep it. He gave it back to them. So he trusted that these kings weren't going to come after him again or that God would protect him if that happened. And he trusted in the provisions that God had already given him. He didn't need to keep all that he had gained from the victories. So Nancy, Nancy Guthrie put it perfectly at one point in the study. She says, Abraham, like us, is a mix of self-centered reliance and trust in God. We're just as he is. Self-reliance showed up in Egypt. It'll later show up with Hagar when we go there next week and Mary takes us on that journey. And yet his trust in God is apparent when he quickly obeys to go, when he goes to save Lot and to reclaim him, and also when he allowed Lot to choose the land. He knew that God would give him a piece of land that would provide all that they needed for his family. Nancy Guthrie laid out a challenge. She asked us to speak our name in the place of Abram's in the verse in chapter 15. Verse 6, it begins with the word of the Lord coming to Abraham in a vision. The Lord says, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. 
So Nancy asked us to put our name in place of Abram. Could you do it? Was it hard? Was it easy? Did you just skip it and keep reading like I did? (laughs) If you weren't able to do this, I would challenge you, even right now, do not be afraid. I am your shield, your very great reward. Can you hear it? In our small groups, it could also be a challenge if we could go around and each say it with our name put in. If that's hard, maybe your sister next to you can say it for you and so on. But I wonder what transformation that would have for us if that was embedded in our hearts. So that took us up to verse 6 in chapter 15. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. So our study points out that this verse is quoted three times in the New Testament. So here's our links. Here's the fact that it's one big story. It's our reminder of that. It's in Romans 4.3, Galatians 3.6, and James 2.23. I mentioned at the beginning we would come back to that righteousness piece. So here we go. I'm going to give it a shot. So when I look up the definition of righteousness, it's holy, sanctified. Again, my teaching brain went to what can I attach it to, and it's the opposite of sin. So sin is on one side. Righteousness is on the complete other opposite side. But is righteousness about our behavior? Or is it about a heart transformation that needs to take place? Is it doing the right thing and behaving as God God did when he was here on earth? Or is it something more? With heart transformation and an actual turning toward Christ, so looking to do, looking to see him and his promises, would that transform our hearts to trust? With that transformation, then the outward behavior is the result. So I just found myself thinking, where does that righteousness start? That faith in God is the first step. The trust results in the righteousness that then drives our behavior to be as, as Christ. Abram believed God and his belief was counted to him as righteous. Nancy Guthrie reminds us that Abram had to fight against what he saw and felt. So he had to go against logic. He couldn't always just look at what was right in front of him or what felt right or give in to not. Sometimes we can't recognize that our fears or our worry or our anxiety is driving our decisions. Sometimes we need to wait and hear God's direction. We need to hear confirmation from one another so that we can trust what we're hearing and what we think God is telling us to do. And so that's why I'm appreciative of our group, of one another. He gives us those things. Circumstances align, whatever it may be. We talked about some of those things last year in our study with Priscilla Shire, those ways that God confirms his voice to us. 
So he had to fight sometimes against his intuition. He had to fight against that urge to protect himself, to take control, which I do every day. On page 163 in this study, you can go back and see, she reminds us that our own humanity, our own failures cause us to doubt whether we can really experience what God has promised. So we see the promises, we know them. There was a whole exercise in our study that was amazing that, that made us write down what those promises were and how God expanded them throughout these chapters. So I encourage you to go back and talk about those things. But ultimately, God's promises, they pierced Abraham's heart. Saving faith is putting all our hope in what God has promised. So to go back, what, did, what has God promised? He promised Abram that he would be the father of all nations, that he would enter into the promised land. This promise would be fulfilled through his offspring. Here's where we look for Jesus. Jesus is that ultimate offspring. All who believe in Christ belong to him and are heirs. We're heirs to those promises. We're heirs to the promised land. That land is our future home, not this one. We can have peace. We can have rest. We can rest in his promises. But ultimately, our promised land is a home without suffering, no crying, no mourning, no quarreling, no being angry, but it's a home with unity and joy and peace. And so by looking to Christ, looking to those promises, our trust can grow, we keep our eyes fixed on him. Another suggestion when you go to your small groups, please spend time on the covenant. It's beautiful. If you go to church here, Steve did an amazing job a couple Sundays ago of laying, going through the covenant. Nancy Guthrie takes us on a wonderful journey of what it meant in that time, what it means to us today. Spend some time there. Look at what was part of that. Our righteousness is derived from our actions. It's not derived from our actions. It comes from our faith and the heart transformation that can take place when we trust the Lord. Our trust can show when we rely on him and not our own ways. We can exhibit that trust when we turn our worries and fears over to him. Go back to that verse. Do not be afraid. Our God is our shield. Our God is our very great reward. Our hope is in the day when Christ returns. When we lose hope or have doubts like Abram, we have the same little visual that God gave Abram. He told him to look to the stars. So when the light goes dim, the night comes on, and we're lost in the fear and our worries, we too can look to the sky and picture and look and see the stars, see how numerous our church is and picture the land that will be our home, our ultimate home and rest in him. When you look to the stars, look for Jesus and see those promises and allow your trust to grow in him. And with that, I will pray for us.
Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for your words, for your stories, for who you are. Your great and mighty power is our protection. You are our shield. I thank you so much for these ladies. When I look around this room, when I think of the ladies at Tuesday night, the faces of Thursday morning, I see women who are walking with you, strong in their faith. They've taught me so much. You've taught me so much through them, and so I'm just grateful for our community. I just pray that you be with us this morning. Be with us as we talk. Guide our conversation. Help us to see you, new insights into you, and help our trust to grow. I just pray that you be with us this morning, tomorrow, and throughout the week. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you and all that you would have us do and say. We thank you for this time and thank you for your love and your grace. We pray all these things in your precious name. Amen. Have a good morning, ladies.